0: The first trimester of this year, we talked about uh, the foundations, the theological foundations that we needed to even begin such a journey. The second trimester, we talked about spiritual warfare, which we would certainly need uh, to know about as we went on the journey because this would not be without attack. Now we want to begin to start the journey itself with a vision of what could be, with the beginning of the necessities of what it takes to start a journey. Last week was the first Sunday, and if you, if you missed last week please pick up a tape because it's very important for you to know why we need to make the journey at all. In essence, it is the fact that we have not made spiritual progress as a, as a nation of believers. I don't know of anyone who says that the the faith is in a better state now than it was at when the church began, or that we certainly are closer to God, and of more Christian maturity than the original apostles. We have not made progress. Why? Well, it says in Galatians three three. We said it last week. What was begun in the spirit has been taken over by the flesh. We have tried to perfect and complete a spiritual journey by a fleshly management. And you can't do that. Therefore, we need to start on a new journey. And one of the things that we need to do, one of the first things we need to do is establish the dynamic, reestablish the dynamic of faith in our lives. Now, we're going to be talking all month about faith. One of the things that I will... uh, Uh, that I hope that you will see, is that we are not going to just give spiritual principles, new spiritual principles every week. We are going to re-examine a dynamic that we need woven in our character until it is woven in our character. And as a precursor uh, to what we will be doing, precursor probably is not the right word, is it? It has the word curse in it. As a pre-blessinger to what we are going to be doing, we are going to be taking these dynamics month by month before we get into uh, uh, the biblical themes that start in 1992. I want to talk about faith. The Bible says in King James uh, version, uh, 14th chapter, 23rd verse, that whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So therefore, we want to begin at the very beginning by reestablishing the faith, our faith. Now, traditionally, there are two aspects. There is fides qua creditor, which is the faith by which we believe, and fides qua creditor, the faith in that which we believe. First, let's take the, let's take the first one first. We need to know, as we're going on this journey, we are not going to be able to see a thing unless we reestablish our open contact with the Father. That's the tool of faith. That is the avenue of faith. We need to have our eyes opened. It says in um, Acts chapter 26, 18, Open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the domain, dominion of Satan to God, in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith with me. That's what we're going toward. The sanctification, the inheritance that goes along with the sanctification by faith. So therefore, we need that dynamic. Now, the first thing you need to know when you get a dynamic like that, and when you head for a dynamic like that, is that it is not something you conjure in yourself or figure out yourself. It is a gift. We were made for faith. If the first thing God did was to make us for faith, then you have to know that's the first thing you have to do on any journey. In chapter 1, verse 27 of Genesis, let's read it. Chapter 1, verse 27, it says this. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. What that says is we were made from the very beginning to have a relationship with God. That's what being created in His image is. Having contact with Him. Being enough like Him that we can understand Him, that we can see Him. Very important. A long time ago in ministry, about 15 years ago, uh, I started out uh, solo after a couple of pastors where I was associate. And uh, started out my first church had a lot of elderly people, so I spent a lot of time hospital visiting. And they tended to stay quite a while in the hospital. And I remember visiting Arthur Nordhorn, who was an old farmer. Neat, neat old guy. Loved to talk. Now, these what they used to say to to us is, don't stay any more than two or three minutes in a hospital room, or four or five minutes, because it tires people out. Just go in, pray for them, and let you know you care for them, and that'll be that. Well, you didn't get away with that when you, when you went to see old people. If you didn't stay there a while, they just... Wondered why you made the trip at all. So I'd sit down by the bed, and Norty, they called him, Norty would just start, you know, off in a conversation. And they were always fascinated. I love to sit at these guys' feet because they had they had been in the faith much longer than I had. They knew much more than I did, and I just used to sit and learn so much. And we were just talking about different things, and he said, Reverend, do they offer prizes in boxes anymore? Well I said, Well, in cereal boxes they do, Norty, they've got all kinds of little kids rings and you know yo-yos and all of that kind of stuff, and his eyes lit up. He said, Boy, when I was a kid, they offered prizes. He said, Well, you didn't used to be in cereal boxes, it used to be in things like soap and things like that. And I remember wanting every prize that came in a box. And I remember uh, most of them were puzzles. And I was the best puzzle figure outer you've ever seen, Reverend. I mean, I could figure out anything. But one time, I got a puzzle in a box that had me licked. I could not figure that thing out. I spent hours and days on that thing, and I couldn't figure it out. Well, I had come to the conclusion that they had made it right. So I, I sent away to the company, and I said, either send me a new puzzle or send me the instructions to this thing. Sure enough, they sent me back the instructions. there wasn't anything wrong with the puzzle. What it was, was this. There were two out of those 12 pieces that you had to fit together first. If you didn't get those two pieces together first, it didn't, no matter how long you tried to get the rest of that puzzle, it wouldn't come together. If you fit those two pieces together, then eventually everything would come together. That's kind of like faith, isn't it, Reverend? Kind of like you and Jesus. Yeah, it's a lot like that. As we start on this journey, the first thing we have to do is get together with Jesus. Through the avenue of faith, through the channel of faith, is go back to God and say, Lord, reestablish my faith. I realize it's a gift. Ephesians 2.8. For you have been saved by grace through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not only talking about the grace, it's talking about the faith. In all, in Scripture, it talks about going to God and asking Him for increased faith. For a new avenue in uh, Mark 9, 23 or 24. can't remember which, but it talks about the man who has a son, who has an illness that throws him into the fire and into the water. And Jesus said, well, how long has it been like this? He says, all of his life. Heal him if you can. Jesus said, if I can, all is possible to those who believe. And he says, Lord, I do believe. Help thou my unbelief. That is, I've got some, but I need some more. Can you help that part? In Luke seventeen five, the disciples go to Jesus and they say, Lord, increase our faith. Of course, the Lord's response is to use what you've got. And that's how you increase your faith, by the way, to use what you've got. Romans, it gives us instructions on how to get faith. Faith comes by hearing, Romans 10, 17 says. And hearing by what? The Word of God, exactly. When you hear the Word of God. Now, the word here is rhema, and it's an utterance from God. It's not just the principles of God, it's an utterance from God. That's where we want to go with our faith. We want to be able to hear the utterances from God as well as understand the principles of God. John 4.42 The Samaritan woman, the woman at the well comes back and says to her people I just met a man who told me everything I'd ever done. He's the Messiah. And there are some who believe on that point because they've heard the principle but then Jesus comes and lives with them a couple of days and they say to her now we believe no longer because of what you've said but because of what we've heard John 4:42. That's 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 the utterance of God and that's what builds up our faith that's the only way we will be able to tell whether or not we're on the right track. Why? Isn't it true that in this day and age, in any kind of journey, you can kind of tell from the circumstances of the world whether or not you're going right or wrong? If you're making a journey, won't your life be horrible? Or or if you're going in the right direction, won't your life be good? Watch out. There's the first trap of any journey. We cannot interpret from the world how we are doing spiritually. You cannot do that. You know why? Because you first have to know God before you can interpret how the world was supposed to be in the first place. Great Reformed theologian Cornelius Van Til wrote that the knowledge of God precedes the knowledge of the universe. Why? Because unless we know how things are supposed to be, we'll never know when they're right. You see, the material world is nothing more than the manifestation of his plan. Therefore, Van Til says, God is the ultimate interpreter. God is the ultimate interpretation. And until we know God, we won't know what the world's supposed to be like or what our lives are supposed to be like. Even more to the point, 2,500 years before Van Til lived, a man named Aristotle lived. And he said, in the analysis, of all of the world, there are four causes for everything. Now what I want you to hear when you hear this is why our reasoning is so short-sighted and so faulty in the world today. Because what modern science has done is to take the first two causes and stick to the first two causes and leave the other two causes, which in classical analysis... An analysis never could have been done fully without these other two causes. But modern science leaves them alone. And we've been trained only in the scientific method. Now let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. We'll take the the example that he took of a shoe. Aristotle said that the first cause that you look for is a material cause. That is, what material went to make up what you're looking at? So if you take a shoe, you have leather, you have glue, you have... Nails and so on and so forth, string, whatever. That's the material cause. Now science does that very well. Science analyzes the material that makes us. That's what medicine does. It analyzes the material of your body and what effect what material has on other materials. See, so that's the material cause. We already do that very well, and we can look at the, what the at the world and say what makes this up. You know, what are the different elements that make it? We know that. Next, there's the efficient cause. That is. What energy went into this thing to make it up? What caused this thing to be? That is the premier science now. The science of cosmology, the science of physics. Everybody is is interested now in black holes and and, uh, um, singularities and, and the Big Bang theory and so on and so forth. That's what that is. But they leave it there. The other two causes that were very important in the analysis of what the world was like was the formal cause. Things don't just come together. To make a shoe, the cobbler must have in his mind a prototype or an archetype. What was the plan in the cobbler's mind to make that shoe? That's how you can tell whether or not it's made right by knowing what the plan was. We can't look at the world and see if it's made right or wrong or how to correct it until we see the plan in the mind of God. See? The formal cause is so important. And then the final cause, Aristotle says, is the purpose for which that shoe was made. That is the protection of the foot. How are we ever to know why we were put here unless we know the purpose for which we were put here? How are we ever to know that Unless we know our Creator. Unless we can go straight to Him and say, God, why did you put me here? I mean, I know I didn't just fall together, and I know I'm not just in these circumstances because I just fell into them. What is your plan? So therefore, the knowledge of God must precede the knowledge of the universe. And when we go on this journey, everything counts on how well we know God as to whether or not we will be able to recognize where we are. Therefore, Lord, increase our faith. Fides qua creditor. That by which we believe, we want. Now let's go to the second point. Fides qua creditor. What do we see that we can believe in? When we begin to see with the eyes of God, What happens? How will it be different? Well, in Scripture, again, it talks about hearing the utterances of God and and recognizing it upon contact. In Isaiah chapter 30, it says this. As you're walking along, it says Mm -hmm. you're going to get some guidance. And the kind of guidance it will will be an utterance from God. In Isaiah chapter 30, verse 21, Well, let's go with verse 20. The second part of verse 20. He said, He, your teacher, will no longer hide himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher. See, that's that fides qua creditor. Your eyes will behold your teacher. Now, and your ears, fides qua creditor, that which we believe, your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way. Walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right or to the left. So therefore... You begin to see as God sees. When you step out in faith. When you follow up in faith. Uh, Look at uh, the faith chapter, just for a second. Hebrews chapter 11. Let me me show you two things there. Because it talks about both blindness and sight. Let me show you the difference. In verse 1, it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things, what? Not seen. What does that mean? Well, that means exactly what we're doing on work day. Going out and studying in an empty space. And the reason we're studying in that empty space is because we have the conviction that something's going to come there that we can't see right now. So the not seeing is a physical seeing. Therefore, when you're walking by faith and not by sight... It doesn't mean you don't have sight, it means you don't have physical sight. Now, watch what it says when it talks about these saints who had faith who journeyed on. Look at verse 6, look at verse uh, 13. It says, "All these died what? In faith without receiving the promises, but having what? Seen them and having welcomed them from a distance." When you begin to depend upon knowledge, not from your senses, not from your reasoning, not from your experience, but from God Almighty, you will begin to see things that no one else can see. And you will be able to understand circumstances the way you never have before. I read an interesting book this week. It's called A Brief History of Eternity. Written by a man named Roy Peacock, who is a professor at the University of Pisa, where Galileo did his work. This is a uh, professor of cosmology, specializing in thermodynamics. Now, many of you read the book, A Brief History of Time, by Stephen Hawking, the physicist. This is a play on that book from a Christian's perspective, and he has traced the development of the science of cosmology up through the years with a special note of the motivation of faith of the scientists. Up until Einstein, who had a modicum of faith, i.e. God does not play dice with the universe, a modicum of faith. But up until Einstein, practically every one of the scientists that made a significant contribution made a significant contribution for God. They saw it as God revealing things about the world to them. Most typical is a statement by Johann Kepler. Now, Kepler was the one who, um, against reason, against tradition, against experience, against everything, noted that the patterns, the planetary orbits, were not circular, as as the Greeks would have us agree, because that was the perfect shape, but were elliptical. They were oval. And when he discovered that, and he saw that not only did not their shape make any sense, but their speed was governed by something that, that was totally against human reason and human tradition and human experience... He exclaimed this, O God, I am thinking thy thoughts after thee. See? I am thinking thy thoughts after thee. You know what that means to us? What that means is, if God will reveal to you things about this world, as He will, then you no longer think as men think. But it doesn't just mean that you are greater in the spiritual realm, it means you see things in the physical realm that are even more scientifically true than what have been attested so far. They are more realistic, because the one who is revealing them to you is the maker of the universe. Now, it's important that we not only see what God shows us, but that we Follow what God chose us. Hang on just a little bit longer and I'll be done. Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 2. Jesus, who is the pioneer or the author and the perfecter of our faith. There's that word perfecter again, teleos. The one who matures, the one who completes, the one who fulfills what we were supposed to be. Now, how do we we, um, incorporate that into our world? We... Fix our eyes on Jesus. Why? Well, if He's the author and the perfecter, if He's the Alpha and the Omega, so that we can follow Him. Not only so that we can learn from Him, but so that we can follow His ways in this world. Let me tell you a story real quick. When I was a senior in high school, we had a football team. It was pitiful. I mean, it was absolutely awful. It was awful because, number one, we, we had a mediocre, mediocre uh, uh, season when I was a junior, five, five, 5 and five. But it was awful because we had absolutely no talent. <laughs> you took a look at us; we weren't big. I I weighed 145 pounds and played on the line. Does that give you a hint as to how big we were? I mean, we weren't big. We weren't fast. We didn't have anything, go- we weren't smart, we didn't have anything going for us. We had absolutely nothing. I mean, it looked like, you know, if we would have shown up for any particular game in our uniforms, the shoulder pads kind of went like this because nobody's big enough to fit in the shoulder pads. And you just looked at the comparison of the team, you start laughing. That's where we were. At the end of that season, we were undefeated, ranked ninth. In the state now, this is before schools were ranked according to size. Uh, they were, we were all in there together, and Ohio is a football state, ranked ninth in the state. We were a little cow town. How did we do it? Tell you how we did it. We were well coached, and we saw what the coach saw, and we thought what the coach thought, and we acted together like the coach said. That's. The only way we could come out to a winning season. Let me tell you three things that we did. Number one, we studied what the coach wrote. We took our playbooks home every night. And we didn't have a great deal of road, great number of road scholars on this team. So you could see these poor guys pouring over these playbooks every night to memorize the plays. So that everybody knew the pattern that was supposed to be. That's very critical on any kind of journey. You have to know what you're supposed to do. You have to know what it looks like when it's ideal. And that's what you get when you study the playbook. And we studied that playbook every night. The coach would come in every day and say, Boys, the best football player is a smart football player. And you will not be a smart football player unless you memorize that playbook. And we decided we had nothing else going for it. We memorized it. We memorized it. We not only memorized the playbook; we memorized the scouting reports. They would go out and scout the other teams and the formations that they used. We knew them backwards and forwards. We knew them. And every time, I also played linebacker. Every time they had a, a, a offense that was that was to be the other the other team. Every time they would come to the line, the coach in practice would shout out, "What's the formation?" And we would say, ring right, slot left, full house, whatever. Whatever it was, every person on the team was able to say that. What did they run out of this play? We were able to name the different plays they ran and the percentages of time that they ran that play, those plays. And he said, okay, watch their eyes. Now, nobody ever asked our coach questions. He was one of these guys that you didn't ask. You just didn't ask because you were afraid. Nobody knew what he meant. Watch their eyes. Well... We did the same thing on, on offense. We would line up. And they would line up the different defenses. Was it a 6-2? Was it a 4-4? Was it a 5-3 with a monster? Was it a 5-4? What was it? We all knew. And we knew what stunts they they ran. And particularly how often they would run them. And how to block those people. Okay. He say. By the way, the watch their eyes thing. In case I forget there and you go away curious. Finally, we figured out a couple games into the season that if we would watch on defense, watch the eyes of the offensive guys as they broke away from the huddle, sooner or later you could pick out one guy who every time they broke out of that huddle would look at the hole that they were going to run through. He had no idea he was doing it. But he's usually usually a, a back who would come up to the line and look directly where they were going to run. And so by the second quarter, we were calling the holes that they were going to run in. They drove them nuts. They didn't know how we were doing it. They thought we had you know people with in their in their huddle or whatever, simply from watching their eyes now from memorizing that prayer book and from hearing the utterances of the coach that he wasn't shouting them out anymore we were hearing his voice in our and when they when they came to the line, we could shout the formations we could shout out the the possibilities and then we could watch their eyes and possibly name the hole that they were going to run in our, our our defensive held their teams to an average of six to eight points the whole season because we were well coached and not only that but the coach demonstrated okay he was the, the author and the pioneer and the perfecter he demonstrated to us how to do it i remember the first time i learned how to trap block oh it was embarrassing it was awful i didn't know anything about trap blocking i was a guard and the whole line pulls forward, and you, and you get down. I'm trying not to split my pants here. You get down, and one person goes past the tackle to make another block, and, and their tackle gets in free. It's the job of the guard to go knock out the tackle so that the back can come behind. Well, the first time we ever did that, he said, Hunter, take the tackle. So I bent down, and the line went forward, and I was going like this, looking for the tackle. Now the coach says, Oh, great. I want you all to know how much of a wonderful contribution Hunter is making to this team. He says, Let me just show you what Hunter did. Oh, I knew right then my goose was cooked. He said, My four rates at, Oh, where's my block? Where is that? <laughs> oh, are you him? Who should I block? You big silly dog, tackle my guy. Man, I just wanted to die. He said, Hunter, that's no way to make a block. He said, you've got, to get, you've got to throw your arm back. And that does two things. First of all, you've only got a split second after the guys fire out to make a straight line. They're going to get pushed back sometimes, and you could trip over them. How'd you like that? Oh, I wouldn't like that, coach. <laughs> no, you wouldn't like that. Correct. Secondly, you've got to throw your arm back, and you've got a picture in your mind before you ever get there. But that's where he's going to be. You only have it. You can't go down looking for the guy to block. How You're gonna pick out a number you like. Go down and take the guy out. You know you've got to see it in your mind. It's exactly how Christianity works. We usually go, oh, I'm on a spiritual journey. Oh boy, what do I do here? I just know I want to get there. We have no idea what's coming down the line. We haven't memorized the formations. When Satan comes against us, we don't know what play he's going to run. We don't know. Listen, you can tell if you're reading the word what the temptations are that are going to come against you and when they're going to happen, if you're alert. What's the rise? You know what's going to happen in the world if you read the word and if in faith you hear the utterances of the coach. And then you go for it. Knowing that when you get there, what you're going to do. Your man's going to be there. You've seen it in your mind. That's where we start. We start from faith. We start from a playbook. We start from hearing the coach. We start with that strong relationship. And it will take us much farther than human talent or human knowledge or human experience could ever get us. It's the only way we can win. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we reconfess not just our sin, but our inadequacy to read this world as you see it. We have been schooled in the ways... Of the world that will tell us when circumstances are going right or circumstances may be going rough, but we have not been close enough to you, understanding enough of your plan to know whether or not they are going according to you. And how we are to approach that perfect play so that we can run them according to your plan for our lives. We ask you to increase our faith dependence upon you so that eventually we may see with your eyes and we may hear your utterances and we may follow the example we've seen in your Son, Jesus Christ, so that in this journey... We will not look to the world for our signposts. We will look to your word and to our relationship with you. Now for the ultimate symbol of our reception of you, instead of our walking along in front of you, we come to your table. We know that the gift of your son Jesus Christ, the word incarnate, can live in our hearts. And we know that for anything to come out right, that's exactly what must happen. Lord, before we come to this table this morning, we would invite anyone who does not have a personal relationship with you and does not know how to establish one to take the first step in response to the faith that you have planted in their hearts to say, God, I want you to live in my heart. I accept the forgiveness that Christ wrought for me on the cross. And I want to follow you all the days of my life. For those of us who have made that commitment, Lord, but have taken up the ways of the flesh again, we ask you, help us to receive. Help us to receive you and who you are so that our character might be molded into the image of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.